Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. There's something wrong with the idea of business and innovation in the digital economy. Everybody knows it, but no one quite knows how to fix it or even how to explain the problem clearly. Automation is rewriting the playbook for jobs, algorithms are replacing investors, and innovative thinkers have their visions swept up in the demands of startup investors. In his new book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, our guest today, Douglas Rushkoff, argues that our world does not have to work this way. Rushkoff calls on us to reboot this obsolete economic operating system and use the unique distributive power of the internet to break free of the winner-take-all, game-defining business of today. In his words, we are running a 21st century digital economy on a 13th century printing press era operating system, and it's just not working. And then in the second half of today's show, we talk about different ways of organizing business and innovation with not-for-profit business with guest Jennifer Hinton, author of an upcoming book, How on Earth, Flourishing in a Not-for-Profit World by 2050. This is episode 94 of The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. Get ready for another amazing Extra Environmentalist episode. place to start for our listeners is to just recap the growth model of today's tech startups. You know, I was just looking at the numbers yesterday and Snapchat is valued the same as Deutsche Bank, a major European financial institution. Like, what does that even mean? Well, I mean, most simply what we're looking at is a kind of a basic pyramid scheme. I mean, I don't usually talk about it like this, but, you know, the people who found and invest in digital startups are doing it in order to flip them. So it doesn't really matter if the company makes revenue or supports a marketplace or has any true longevity in front of it. What matters is that it can sell its shares for a hundred times whatever that last round of people bought them for. So you look at a, a company like Twitter, which you can like it or not, but you know, Twitter makes $2 billion a year 
on its 140 character messaging app. And that's considered an abject failure by Wall Street because $2 billion is about all they can figure out how to make. They've kind of plateaued at $2 billion. So it doesn't matter that the company has revenues. It doesn't matter that it could be extremely profitable for everybody involved. All that matters is that they can go from a $2 billion company to a $4 billion company, that they can get their, their share price to grow. So that's what Snapchat or Facebook or any of the companies that are considered successful, that's what it really means is that they can get someone else to buy their shares for more than the last round of people put in. And all you need to do that is to show that you can establish a monopoly in a particular vertical and that you can then pivot from that vertical to another one and to another one and so on and so on. You know, it's much more the the Amazon model of well, we're going to go and take over the book industry, not because they need there to be a book industry 10 years from now, but because establishing a monopoly in that book industry lets you grow into another industry and another one. So Snapchat looks like they're going to win messaging on some level, and that means that they should be able to leverage that win into something else and something else. Right. And this growth profile into platform domination is something that seems quite new about this recent round of tech startups versus those in the past. How is that growth model, that growth profile into dominating a platform impacting innovation in the economy overall? Well, I mean, it, it impacts it a lot. I mean, it, it, it turns innovation from a kind of the science of how do we serve customers or how do we create new marketplaces into something you know much more cynical you know innovation now means how can we exploit the monopoly we've created or extend that monopoly so it's not new to digital you know it's what walmart did walmart got by establishing a monopoly in big box stores I don't know that they really have it so much anymore now that there's an Amazon, but there was a point at which companies really had to decide, do I want to sell through Walmart or do I want to sell in every other way? You know, If you want to sell through Walmart, then what's their RFID tag system? You know, What is their distribution scheme? You have to reconfigure your whole business around producing for Walmart and Walmart's shelves and Walmart's way of tagging things. And, you know, I was just in a meeting this morning with one of the New York City councilmen. They're looking at, there's a company called Seamless here in New York, which has essentially a monopoly on restaurant delivery. So they have an app. It's like Uber, but for restaurant delivery. And what most people don't know is that now that they've established that monopoly, They make it really hard for a restaurant to survive if they don't use Seamless. And then if you don't pay Seamless extra money, they change their algorithm so that you show up lower in the choices of restaurants that are available to you. So now restaurants are paying, you know, upwards of 25% of their bill to this company that's really just replicating what the restaurant could already do on its own. You could already call a restaurant and 
order food to be delivered. But if you want the convenience of the app and you want to be able to choose the restaurant through the app, now the establishment of that monopoly lets them, you know, tighten their grip and force restaurants, you know, to either you're either with us or against us. And if you're against them, then you're in trouble, you know, if you're not somehow participating in this platform. Right. Yeah. These platforms like Uber, they're extremely convenient. I mean, I remember when Uber launched a few years ago and I would travel to a city and use it. I was just blown away at how simple it is compared to hailing a cab. But is this convenience just a short term kind of blip in the longer development arc of these companies? Like, let's fast forward five to seven years and maybe Uber is successful in becoming the platform for transportation and there's no taxi companies or there's no other driving options other than getting an Uber, what would that take into its kind of logical development pathway look like? Well, what it ultimately looks like is destroying the entire taxi business. In other words, they they make taxi driving so unsustainable for the drivers that all the drivers go out of business and the industry is itself decimated. And then we see new growth. Then you see alternatives emerge if they're not already emerging. It's like what happened when Clear Channel, basically a big marketing company, used their huge war chest to come in and buy most of the FM radio stations all around the country. And that's because they believed incorrectly as if the radio was a growth industry And that by consolidating all these stations and essentially running them from, you know, a single warehouse out in Utah or somewhere, rather than having local DJs and local sales and all that, they were just going to commodify this space and centralize it and, you know, run everything through computers and buy computers. And they destroyed the local fabric of the FM radio universe, whatever that may have been. And eventually they realized that they didn't make any money this way. There wasn't money. People stopped listening because part of what makes terrestrial radio special is that it is local. There's some sort of local flavor. There's some sense of interaction with, you know, with the broadcaster. So then they sold all the stations. They gave up. You know, they destroyed the marketplace. And then they sold it back. I mean, it, it's not exactly good because it's really hard to rebuild an ecosystem, especially a cultural ecosystem after it's been destroyed. But, you know, I don't see Uber staying in the ride sharing business for so long. You know, I don't even see uh, Amazon necessarily staying in the book industry. They don't really care now that the local bookshop is ascendant and that their, their book market even matters to them so much because that's that's low profit compared to cloud services and the other sorts of things that they want to monopolize now. Yeah, it seemed like the web and web technologies were a lot more fun years ago. And maybe I'm just getting curmudgeon but there were things like, you know, Kazai and Napster and peer-to-peer file sharing that when it first launched, it was like, wow, this person has this file on their hard drive and they want to share it with me and I can access all of this information that was locked behind paywalls or whatever. And now it's available. And it seems like over the last few years, that kind of endless frontier of information that made the web fun is increasingly shrinking and coming behind paywalls and 
pages just completely dominated by ads like HuffPost. So is there a way around the way that it seems like the web is going? Like, is there hope for returning to that original kind of fun hacker culture that existed in, in the 90s and before the web became dominated by corporate interests? Well, I mean, the hope isn't even that the whole web shifts back. It's that the web or the internet will even be able to accommodate a parallel culture of participation and art and community and peer-to-peer activity. You know, the way that the net is going, I mean, even most digital publications, which were formerly magazines, they're moving on to Facebook now. You know, they're going to use Facebook as their distribution platform because people don't even go to the home pages of most publications. They get all of their traffic you know, sideways through social media. And if they want to stay high in the social media platforms algorithms, they've got to move in, you know, lock, stock and barrel. So it's interesting, the early internet had uh, America Online. A lot of people thought America Online was the internet, but America Online was actually a, a walled garden that wasn't even connected to the internet for a while. And then people realized, oh, there is this net out there. And it was inevitable that those walls would fall because people would want to be out on the greater net and actually in the real world. And now it looks like Facebook has enough power and enough members and enough people who really look at the world through its algorithms and its platform that uh, a whole lot of culture is moving onto their website as a way of protecting themselves. You know, and that's uh, a, a negative development as far as I see it. On the other hand, there are still people who are interested in what, you know, what we now call the open web. And the open web is really just the original web. The idea that you maintain your own website instead of going onto these giant centralized platforms and that you use protocols for one website to connect with another one, with another one. You know, something much closer to the early internet dream of a large network of nodes that are connected through protocols. And I think people, as they realize they can't get jobs in this highly centralized digital economy, as companies realize that, you know, it, it might be better to beat them than join them. I think we will see the retrieval of some of these earlier networking values. Yeah, you talk about working with them or against them in, in terms of the values of what the internet can be. And as a young professional, I meet a lot of people who idealize the life as a coder, you know, making a six-figure salary. And because the pay is so good, it's kind of like, oh, I, I want to focus my career on doing that. Is it worth it to actually work for one of these Silicon Valley companies? You know, what is the life like for their employees? It depends. I mean, you know, some people can, can live that way. You know, the, the idea is if you could even just go be a coder for four or five years, make more than enough money doing it, and somehow before you burn out, your company reaches IPO and you get all that money, and then you've played it right on a certain level. I mean, you, you know, you may not be having fun, but they, they look at that as the object of the game, you know, that you're playing a game to get out with a lot of cash. 
And what they don't realize is how few actually do that. Even if you make $100,000, $150,000 a year, you know, you're living in San Francisco, spending that much a year for your crazy ass loft apartment. You're working day and night, you know, to the point where even if you have a girlfriend, you don't have the energy to have sex with her. You know, you're, you're doing your laundry down in the Googleplex or whatever other company is treating you like Google or Uber or uh, any of these companies treat you. And you're really disavowing yourself of your own power. You know, if you know C++ and Java and Python, if you actually know how to build, then you could be one of the master builders of the new economy, of the new culture. You know, you're in the driver's seat for something and relinquishing that power. You know, when I see the smartest CS graduates of Stanford going to work for Goldman Sachs, developing algorithms that do nothing but extract money from the marketplace, it saddens me a little bit because not that they're going to do well, but it saddens me that they don't realize just how powerful a position that they're in. And so how could coders or people with that computer science knowledge not work for the Goldman Sachs, the JP Morgans, or the Amazons, or the Googles, and really create that new economy in, in your vision? By seizing the opportunity, like the, the meeting that I was at this morning. So New York City and all the restaurateurs of New York want an alternative to Seamless, the restaurant ordering system. They want one that would be owned by the restaurants and function in a peer-to-peer way. In other words, as an open platform, we're like an API that you know restaurants could join rather than a centralized opaque platform that just gouges money from them. So this is the opportunity for a coder to make real money, to be a shareholder participant in a platform cooperative that's owned by the people who make it and the people who use it. And there's dozens of opportunities, hundreds of opportunities like this everywhere. You know, every city that wants a competitor to Uber or to Airbnb, every town that is looking for a local currency to uh, compete alongside top-down bank-issued currencies. Gosh, you know, read my book there. You could build any of the things I'm talking about in there. Go talk to a credit union. There's so many more, I think, more and better opportunities for people who know how to program to build community-minded platforms that are optimized not for the extraction of value from people and places, but for the circulation of value and transaction between people and the respect and investment in places. So it's not hard for anyone to find. It's just hard to think this way. It's hard to think incrementally when, if you graduate college or grad school already half a million dollars in debt, it's very hard to think, oh, here's this 60 or $80,000 job that I could have doing good compared to the hundred or $150,000 job I can have maybe doing bad, but at least paying back my loans in 10 years or 15 years. You know, so you, you come out of the gate already needing 
a balloon payment you know, kind of solution. And that's that's really not fair. Yeah. And you write about the growth trap that we're in in the economy at large. And that brings up the question of whether the digital economy can expand forever, because I meet a lot of people who tell me that even though there might be limits to physical growth of expanding roads and the amount of oil we use or Mm -hmm. the amount of carbon we put in the atmosphere with dematerialization, modern technology makes it possible to keep economic growth going and we could grow the digital economy without limits. So what would you say to people who bring that argument to you? Well, I mean, that's what Vannevar Bush and Eisenhower's advisors tried to explain to him at the end of colonialism, you know, in the 1950s. They, it's exactly what they were saying, that the colonial empires have pushed back, but we have infinite real estate online. And that might be true, except for the fact that there's still human beings who need to pay for this value. And we only have so much surface area on our attention. The living in a digital economy that wants to expand forever is part of why we're experiencing what I've been calling present shock, this assault on our attention, this life in an always-on reality where our cell phones are strapped to our bodies so that we can be updated and interrupted every time somebody tweets about us or our boss wants us or there's a new offer at the Gap or something. Notification is not a feature. It's a nightmare because I don't care, you know, and I shouldn't care about any of that if I'm living my own real life. But even that, you know, you bump up against a wall. So you can take every waking hour, every sleeping hour, and every subconscious hour and broadcast to them simultaneously and create a demand for pharmaceuticals in a world where everybody's being assaulted constantly like that. But then you either have to just grow the population or, I mean, you get to a point where even our attention has been used up and people start pushing back, which they are now. People want to spend less time online and less time with their phones. You know, if these devices are going to become so nauseating, so interruptive, then the consumers that everyone is after are going to resist these things. And you're going to see the turnoff movements and people going to restaurants and turning off their phones or making love, you know, and deciding to spend longer doing that rather than shorter. That's a serious problem for those who demand that we be on every second. And we go broke, you know, we've had so much value extracted from us that If you have no money, then what's the point of being online all the time? So they can extract data from us instead. You know, data is the biggest bubble of all. Every single company out there, it's, you know, ultimate exit strategy is some big data plan, except this is data of bankrupt people, you know, and everybody's got the data. So the data is going to become the cheap commodity. I don't see that one working out either. So Yes, there is a logic in the idea that online real estate is infinite. But just as we found out in the web of 1998, just because you have infinite online real estate and a billion of these or tens of billions of HTML pages doesn't mean there's enough eyeball hours, which means the human time to uh, absorb all of it. Yeah, we did a show later last year about digital detoxing, and I think that is responding to what you're just talking about, where people feel over 
colonized or overly engaged by their devices, and they're trying to find a way to get some semblance of their attention or overcome the present shock that you're talking about. And so what is the future of business beyond this kind of growth? Because it's been extremely successful for some investors and some early stage entrepreneurs with exit strategies to grow their companies to these large values and sell them. And, you know, they've made out well financially, but that really can't go on forever is what you're saying. Like eventually there is some limit to how successful that can be financially. And so if businesses are just now coming in and trying to emulate that or entrepreneurs or people with coding skills are trying to come in and emulate that, it may not be as successful in the next 10 years as it was over the last 10 years. What is kind of the new business model that can lead to success for people contemplating that route? Well, I mean, first, you got to accept that none of these companies are actually creating value for people in places. These companies are financialization schemes. You use an app in order to get investment. You change the app in order to get more investment. So you're making the money by selling your shares. You're not making the money by selling a good or service, right? The whole thing is, is cynically concocted. These aren't real businesses. This is all Goldman Sachs financialization of the economy. So when you realize that and you realize that, oh, well, eventually there is a limit to how much financialization can make, to how much you can extract from the world by these false, simulated, synthetic business propositions, then the new opportunity becomes actually serving the human needs that haven't been served by any of these apps or things. So that gets back to, you know, just good old fashioned, basic scaled businesses, you know, go into mom and pop companies, you know, make food, grow food, educate people, clothe people, heal people. It's the really simple kinds of stuff. Now, if you're in technology, then what you want to do is to make the tools that people need to do those things, not the platforms that stock markets need to extract value from the people doing those things, but the actual apps. So what's the difference between creating an Uber that's there to absorb and destroy the driving business and creating an Uber set of protocols through which any driver or driving company can automate their uh, hailing process. It's two very different ways of, of understanding business, where one is selling your business to a new round of investors. The other is supplying a good or service to people at a higher cost than it costs you to provide it and being happy with that as your profit. So that you're, you're not making your profit by selling your company to someone else, but you're making your profit by running your company. Right. And, and currently there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of concern about automation and what that's doing to replacing jobs. And there's a certain line of argument that goes, well, you know, there are Luddites and the spinning Jenny and all of these new industries came out of that that we couldn't imagine when people were resisting this original technological change. So maybe all of this digital economy is going to create lots of jobs we never imagined. You know, there's two sides to that argument. But what 
is the future of jobs in your mind if we look at it in a positive way and how it could be generative for humanity rather than what may happen if Uber kind of takes over the economy? Jobs are an artifact of a very specific moment in the industrial age. We didn't used to have jobs. People owned small businesses. They were craftspeople. And only when being an independent merchant was made illegal by the establishment of the chartered monopoly system, only then did people have to abandon their businesses and go get jobs. That was when we stopped selling the value we created and started selling our time. And because we don't remember that, we don't remember that how that happened or why it happened, most of us now think that the way you get food or the way you get money to buy food to eat is by getting a job working for today's chartered monopolies, which are the big corporations, doing something that you know to be either destructive or useless. And you know, as those companies begin to fail and as they need less and less people, as they automate all of their stuff, it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to get jobs. You know, first off, you can create value without having a job. If you have people with needs and people with skills, you have the basis for an economy. You know, jobs and corporations really in some ways come in as intermediaries to prevent the direct provision of goods and services from one person to another in a local fashion. Second, if we already have an abundance of stuff, which I believe we do, then making a job the prerequisite to participate in that, to enjoy the spoils of capitalism is really silly. You know, so in, in California, we, we tear down houses every week because they're in foreclosure. And across the country, the USDA, we burn food every week because if we let people live in those houses or just gave away the food, then the market prices on those things would go down and challenge this growth-based economy that we're supposed to be living in. You know, where the only reason we're not letting someone live in that house is because they don't have a job. So we need then to create a factory making some useless thing that we then need to create marketing to create demand for this thing that people are going to buy and then put in a storehouse or destroy the environment in order to dig up more resources to make these things in order for some guy to have a job that's not even fun so that he can have the money to justify living in that house that otherwise we would just tear down or no one would live in at all. Right? So there's an ass-backwardsness to this model at this point. You know, I think that what we can move toward is you know, a reduction in the work week so that we can share the jobs. What if we only need people working one or two days a week to get everything done because we've automated all these jobs? The object of the game should not be how do we make sure everyone works enough hours? It should be, does everyone have enough stuff? And if we start from there, the reason to work is because we need to get that labor. We need that labor in order to have stuff and food and shelter. Then, okay, let's find the labor. But if we're doing this just to justify distributing the spoils of capitalism to others, then that's, that's nuts. 
Right. So we're coming into just our last few questions here. And before we go, I wanted to just ask about transitioning into steady state companies, because I think what you're discussing in the book is on the forefront of a discussion that's going to become much broader in the next few years. You write about how even if American corporations wanted to return to the growth paradigm of the past, there's so many problems regarding the return on assets and so on. So how do you go to a company like Coca-Cola and say, we're going to transition into a steady state company now. What what would that even start to look like? Well, you know, I've been talking to a lot of them. Companies can make this transition. You know, there's a lot of ways to do it. The, the main advice I have for them, and a lot of them have, have taken my advice and are doing it, is rather than turning the whole company on a dime, rather than announcing to the world like BP did, saying, oh, we're going to go beyond petroleum and then getting a huge shareholder revolt and having to backtrack on the whole thing, do small experiments, little prototypes, little changes. You know, let a bank start doing some experiments in local crowdfunding. Let Walmart put up a shelf that has locally manufactured goods in its stores. You know, Coca-Cola and Pepsi start looking at renewable energy and healthy food. You know, there's ways to do this, but it, it means communicating with your shareholders differently, talking to them about why it might be better for them to accept dividends, which is like a, a monthly or quarterly payment on the shares rather than expecting growth quarter over quarter and why dividends could be a cool thing, you know, having revenue and earnings and what would that look like. So there are ways to do it. It's just if you're a large company, you can't do it in a sudden fashion or you, you strike too much fear in the shareholders and people who are addicted to um, growth as the, the only way forward. But if you can start paying them through dividends and they can start to see, oh, look, look at all this money. I like this money. Then they get happier. Their fear gets assuaged and you can sort of move forward to more sustainable, more of an equilibrium rather than this extractive and, and ultimately suicidal growth. So to close out, I just wanted to ask you to extrapolate kind of two visions of the future, one where we take the economy of Facebook and Twitter and the direction that companies like Uber are going, if we do more of the same over the next 10 or 20 years, or whether digital technology could kind of create a new golden age, if so, how and what would that look like? One, the first one you're describing is what I call digital industrialism. And it's where all of these digital companies just rely on the scripts that were left to them by Walmart and Exxon and British East India Trading Company, that they just continue industrialism, this thing that was born in really the 12th century and we haven't questioned ever since. If we go that route, we all die, right? We all die. That's sort of the simplest way to say it because these are extractive. These growth-based businesses ultimately destroy the environment and kill the people. So we die. And maybe sooner than we think. You know, it could be this could very well be our last century if we don't steer things radically differently. You know, global warming, I know a lot of people don't believe in climate change and all, but the figures are worse than in our worst projections in terms of percent increase and tidal shifts and the oceans rising and all that. It's it's not good. On the other hand, digital technology could be used in a way much more consonant with networking, much more 
consonant with how digital tools work. In other words, rather than using them to exacerbate this kind of printing press era, growth-based economic platform that was built for colonial empires expanding into Africa and South America, rather than using this you know, slave era understanding of economics, what we do is understand economics as the exchange of value between people. And we use digital technologies to unleash the circulatory capacity of an economy. And it might mean fewer multi-billionaires, you know, so certain people have to set their sights lower. You know, those 50 people that own as much as the bottom 50% of the planet may not get to live the way they do. Although actually they would get to live the way they do. It's just the tens of billions of dollars of extra money they have, they won't have. They'll just have some billions instead of many billions. And we can avert disaster. And it's not, it's not radical. It's not socialist even. We're not talking about redistributing the spoils of capitalism after the fact. We're talking about pre-distributing the means of production before the fact, letting people participate in value creation and exchange the way that the net really was built to allow. And instead of using the net as an extension of the derivatives exchange, you know, we use it to foster the health and values of team human, as I've been calling it. So um, it's, it's actually pretty easy. It's easier than the alternative. It's, it's easier in a day-to-day way. It's easier in a planning way. And it's right in front of our noses if we choose to take that path. do with the stock of Twitter. Twitter should be lower, perhaps appreciably lower, because it doesn't have the growth, and growth is the magic elixir that's required for all tech companies to have high-flying stocks. Such little growth. Why buy this dog? The national battle over inequality, the rich versus the rest of the population, has taken a curious turn in the San Francisco Bay Area, where buses carrying high-tech workers have become a symbol of the divide. Happening now, there's another protest in San Francisco targeting Google's commuter buses. Crown Force Jackie says alive right now in the city's Mission District with details. Jackie? Good morning, Mark. Actually, things are quiet right now, but there was a different scene about 15 minutes ago when about uh, two dozen protesters surrounded a Google bus. In fact, we have some video of what it looked like earlier this morning. Now, we've seen these protests in the past, and some of them were uh, over the fact that they didn't like the fact that Google wasn't paying for the stops uh, at Muni stops for the buses. The buses have sparked a nasty debate that has found its way onto YouTube with the satirical Google bus song. 
Solnit and others say the buses are symbols of the disparity in wealth between the new tech workers and the longtime working class residents of neighborhoods like the Mission. And she adds the influx of techies is gentrifying the city. It's bigger, not 10% bigger in your country, in your company, and in your own personal life because these things are now possible. We have the magic of these technologies. This is perhaps one of the most important things. It's the world's population. We're at 7 billion, just over 7 billion. Internet connectivity. In 2010, we had 1.8 billion people connected online. The projection for 2020 is that by 2020, we're gonna reach five billion people online, which means we have three billion new minds entering the global economy. Three billion people who've never bought anything. Three billion people who have never, you know, have never uploaded or downloaded or used the internet. But what's interesting, in fact, in the last month is the following. So there are now a number of ventures looking to connect not five billion, but all seven billion humans on this planet with a megabit connection. So Mark Zuckerberg's been talking about and buying drone companies and looking at spacecraft. These three to five billion new consumers, if they're not your customer, they're your customer's customers. And they represent tens of trillions of dollars coming online, but they also represent one of the greatest eras of innovation ever. I'll close with another fun example near and dear to my heart. In our solar system, we have access to abundant resources beyond our imagine. So this is an asteroid, and in the last 12 years, there have been discovered a set of asteroids that come very close to the Earth that are abundant in fuels, abundant in metals, abundant in platinum group metals. And these asteroids, this is just one example, this is UW-158, and when you look at its value in terms of fuels for use in space and platinum group metals or metals for use in space or on the ground, the value is $5 trillion. We're living in a world where I believe there is little we cannot accomplish. That we're heading towards a world where entrepreneurs can transform and solve grand challenges. In 10 years, 25% of the U.S. population will name a personal digital assistant as its best friend. Already in the United States, roughly 8% of the adult population name a pet as its best friend. So it's not a, it's not a stretch to, to imagine that. Right. I mean, my timeline is that computers will be at human levels such that you could have an emotional relationship uh, with them in 15 years from now, 2029. 20, so many people uh, don't want to think about the coming disruptions, including people on Wall Street, who sh I believe should be thinking about it a lot more, but I find don't really want to think about it. They're very short-term focused. At CNBC, every week, every day, we talk about Google, but every other at least once a month we bring up driverless cars and I still get wafts of email coming through whenever that happens from people saying, Bob, do you really think we're going to have driverless cars? Do you think we need driverless cars? And my, my answer to them is, the question is not, do we need driverless cars? The question is, do driverless cars need us? You're listening to episode 94 of The Extra Environmentalist. Next up, we have Jennifer Hinton talking about her new book, Flourishing in a Not-for-Profit World by 2050.
as you've been going around the world and working on this book and speaking about it, how have audiences reacted to all of your ideas? How is it when you talk to for-profit business people who often will mesh ideas of generating profit with the idea of public good, like that's what a business should do, and that's you know what a successful business does, or maybe we can have you know like a C three or a B corp where profit is enmeshed in the community. How do people react when you talk about a not for profit world? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, we get a whole range of reactions, of course, but a lot of the for-profit business leaders we've talked to, once they really get what we're talking about in terms of being purely mission-driven and still being profitable, because that's a distinction we like to make, is it's not about profit maximization. It's a switch from profit maximization mindset to being a profitable company, which is you can still generate profit. It's just that that profit is actually more generative when it's kept within the company's mission, when it's all used to further the mission of the company. And I think that that resonates with everybody, especially successful business leaders, because it makes sense. That's that's a lean business model. That's an efficient model. It's not losing anything. And especially when you just clarify that this includes running a successful not-for-profit business, includes paying managers, CEOs, and employees fair salaries, making sure everybody's taken care of. So it's not a sacrificial business model either. It's actually efficient and purpose-driven. So we've gotten good reactions across the board. Cool. Yeah. Have you come across any examples where people will say, you know, I'm a for-profit business now and actually I could transition to a not-for-profit or they've given you examples of successful not-for-profit businesses around the world? Yeah, we've had quite a few for-profit entrepreneurs and business managers say at the end of talks or after conversations, wow, that sounds great. You know, I'm really interested in taking our business in a more not-for-profit direction and how can I do that? And so there are a lot of businesses interested in switching into a more not-for-profit direction. And there are lots of businesses already moving in a more not-for-profit direction, even if they have for-profit legal bodies. And that usually takes the shape of, you know, sort of writing into their statutes that they're going to give 100% of their profits onto charities or use 100% of their profits for the company's mission rather than distributing those profits to private owners or shareholders. So there are steps that for-profits can take, even remaining for-profits, to move in the not-for-profit direction. And then there are for-profits that shift over. So, yeah, we don't have tons of examples of that yet. We're hoping that our book sparks a whole movement of that. So Yeah. So why is it that you think that businesses focused on more than just profit will thrive in the coming decades? Or why would for-profit companies lose their competitive edge? That's a great question, too. And, and we go into that in a lot of detail in the book. But it basically comes down to sort of two simultaneous trends. We're seeing the for-profit system is basically falling in on itself right now. It's a system that requires constant growth. Businesses have to grow to compensate for the extraction of privatized profits. The economy has to grow to compensate for that extraction of the financial surplus of the system. And we're experiencing slower and slower growth all the time. And, and part of that has to do with the very inequality 
that's created by the for-profit system because there's a group of, of wealthy business owners, the capitalists, <laughs> who are accumulating, which is the goal, right? That's the goal of the, the system is to accumulate as much wealth as you can. And they've done a very good job of that, which has resulted in enormous inequality that we have now. And the middle and working classes are struggling just to, to sort of make ends meet. And they certainly can't sustain the sort of consumption that a growing economy needs to sustain the sort of growth that would compensate for that extraction of financial surplus. So there are some inherent contradictions in the for-profit system, and that's faltering. So we see that faltering. At the same time, we see a big demand for more ethical business, and that's that's coming from workers or the new generation of, of the workforce really wants more purpose-driven work, more meaning in their work. And it's also coming from consumers who are becoming more aware of social and environmental issues. And they want the companies that they buy their services and products from to be ethical. They're starting to demand higher standards. Um, so the market's shifting more in a not-for-profit direction, more in a purpose-driven rather than profit-driven direction. And so that's going to give not-for-profits advantages. And you sort of already see this happening with less profit-oriented companies like benefit corporations and B Corps, that they sort of have a competitive edge. And that's why there's such a big trend behind them right now. Is they do have a competitive edge in terms of being seen as more ethical companies. And we extrapolating from that trend, see it moving more and more in a not-for-profit direction where it's just purely purpose-driven business. You're not even distracted with profit maximization at all. So... Yeah, I see a lot of activity, especially here in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I live, around this idea of purpose-driven, emission-driven business. But it's typically in the kind of B Corp framework, or we have something here in British Columbia called C3 corporations, where it's kind of like trying to bridge what you're talking about with not-for-profit enterprise and B Corps, where it's still a for-profit enterprise Mm -hmm. And it can have shareholders, but there's an asset lock for the actual assets of the organization. Mm -hmm. And so why would not-for-profit enterprise improve on the kind of for-profit mission-driven models in the social enterprise world? Would you include not-for-profit business as social enterprise? Sure. Well, social enterprises can be for-profit or not-for-profit in most countries. I mean, it depends on the region you're talking about. But in most places, you can have for-profit social enterprises or not-for-profit social enterprises, which is, you know, that's a question we've gotten a lot is, why don't you just advocate for social enterprise or for-benefit or for-purpose companies? And the point is that those terms, those business terms that we've gotten used to hearing don't tell us about what happens to the profit. They don't tell us about the ownership of the company. And these are essential questions going forward in the 21st century with the, the crises that we have on our hands right now. So we need to know, is, is the profit being extracted? Is it contributing to this extraction of financial surplus from the economy and financial accumulation in the hands of a few individuals? And is it maybe then also distracting from the purpose that even these very well-meaning, less for-profit, but still for-profit business models have, you know, if they have shareholders, if they have private owners that are waiting, they're expecting a dividend or some portion of the profit at the end of the year, that is putting pressure. And when it comes down to making certain tough decisions between profit maximizing or, or profit and 
the purpose, the mission of the company, you know, that's going to weigh in that they do have these owners sort of hovering over expecting financial returns. So, yeah, we're saying that those are, are steps in the right direction, the C3 and the benefit corporations, but we see it moving even further in the not-for-profit that it's going to have advantages as being purely purpose-driven, not distracted at all by profit maximization. So could essentially any industry operate under a not-for-profit framework? That's sort of the beauty of the not-for-profit world model that we've come up with, which is the economic model, which is the vision of an entire economy based on not-for-profit enterprise. And, and of course, the banking sector is the heart of any economy, sort of, you know, pumping the circulation of capital and money through the system. So we still envision banks in the not-for-profit world. We still envision interest and in a lot of the same things that we have in the for-profit world. But when you change the framework from for-profit to not-for-profit, a lot of interesting things happen. And it comes down to, you know, there are credit unions, like you said, not-for-profit cooperative banks, basically. There are also public banks as not-for-profit banking model. For instance, in, in India, the former minister of, I think it was internal affairs, in India said that when the crisis hit in 2008, the global economic crisis, India's banking sector was pretty insulated because these were not-for-profit public banks mostly operating there. And then we have the Bank of North Dakota in the U.S., which is the U.S.'s only not-for-profit public bank. And North Dakota stayed insulated from the crisis, too. So these banks... They're essentially still banks. They still do the same functions as other banks. But what's not happening is there's not private owners and shareholders extracting wealth from them. And that makes a huge difference in terms of the way that they're able to stay focused on their mission. They're not distracted in terms of having the pressure to maximize profit. So they have their mission, which is to meet the community's needs for financial services. And they can stay 100% dedicated to that mission and not be distracted by needing to maximize profit for private owners. So banking doesn't change so much except for the way that it ripples out through the economy, basically. It's not extractive anymore like for-profit banks are. It's more of a circulating mechanism than an extraction mechanism. In terms of other sectors, we've found not-for-profit enterprises in every sector of the economy, from manufacturing to software to anything you name it, we found some examples in that sector. That's basically why we can envision an entire economy based on not-for-profit enterprise. The model of investing in technology now is so focused on what you're talking about with this extractive model, where the kind of Silicon Valley template is one of generating a startup that creates money for investors with an exit strategy where entrepreneurs are just creating ideas that cater to what investors want to put money into. And so if you had an entrepreneur here who was thinking about something that was revolutionary or really interesting business idea that involved technology, what advice would you have them in seeking investment or considering something that could be a not-for-profit? I would definitely encourage them <laughs> to go the not-for-profit route, obviously. It's just in terms of innovation, it gives you so much more freedom 
to innovate in the way that you want to, in the way that feels comfortable to you. There's a great story of Joe Justice, who started a company, a not-for-profit company called Wikispeed. He's based up in Seattle. Don't know if you've heard of him or Wikispeed. But he came up with this idea. He wanted to make the most fuel-efficient car in the U.S., and he worked on it for a few years and made a car that got 100 miles to the gallon. And he started attracting a lot of attention from venture capitalists, basically. So what you're talking about, Silicon Valley types. So he started having meetings with these investors, but he felt totally uncomfortable with their terms because what they wanted was intellectual property rights. So basically, you know, own some share of ownership of his ideas for this car model for the super fuel efficient car model. And he just felt so uncomfortable with their terms that he ended up registering Wikispeed as a not-for-profit company, in essence, to avoid, to give him the freedom to innovate the way he wanted to, not to have to listen to these venture capitalists or investors that he might have, to not have to worry about them hovering over him constantly trying to pick off the next (laughs) profit margin. So he went specifically for innovation purposes in the not-for-profit direction. So that's an interesting story because I think even with what we do as a media organization here at The Extra Environmentalist, there's all of these technologies that are getting smaller and more efficient where to do what we're doing now 10 or 20 years ago, we would have needed investors to like pour money into our organization just so we could get the basic microphones and assets and studio equipment that was required. But now all of this stuff is so cheap compared to setting up a radio studio a few decades ago that we can do it off of things like listener donations and a smaller amount of money. So do you see kind of the scale of modern technology enabling this not-for-profit world over the next few decades that you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. And we often frame this as in another sort of dual trend with the way internet and mobile technology is opening up the space for -for not-for-profits to enter the market. And one of those is, like you said, startup costs and even costs for maintaining a business are dramatically dropping thanks to the internet for companies in lots of industries, maybe not all of them. But being able to advertise online is a lot cheaper and having the technology, I mean, you can get so much done for free or for cheap online now. So the business costs, operating costs and startup costs have dropped a lot. The other thing is that the internet has allowed for whole new ways of raising capital that didn't exist before. So now you have crowdfunding, which has become a real popular way for raising capital for -for not-for-profit projects. And you get examples like Ocean Cleanup, which is based in the Netherlands. And this young man named Boyan Slot came up with this idea for a machine that could clean up the ocean. I don't know if you saw his TED Talk, but he gained a lot of attention. And maybe some venture capitalists approached him too, but he decided to take it in a not-for-profit direction, did a crowdfunding campaign, and they, they raised $2 million to start up the Ocean Cleanup not-for-profit business. And they've got a business model behind it. They're going to recycle the materials that they bring back from the ocean and sell those. And so it's really interesting. So there's crowdfunding is one. Another is peer-to-peer lending. So you can connect. If you've got a project you want to start up in Canada, you can connect with people maybe in Australia, halfway across the world, who, who would like to invest in you and 
They'll give you a loan and you'll give them a small return in terms of interest rates on their loan. So everybody's happy. But the Internet has brought so many different ways of raising capital and, and even selling community bonds. So even in your local community, you might be able to raise a lot more capital by using Internet tools. And, and most of that's cheap or free to use. So it's, it's really changed the game and opened up the market for not-for-profit businesses. So thinking forward, what do you think our economy would look like if your model were to be implemented in kind of a, an evolving way over the next 30 or 40 years? You know, what do you think the economy would look like in 2050 under a not-for-profit world? Well, we've got this really, I mean, a whole chapter in the book, obviously, that describes the not-for-profit world and how we envision that playing out in detail. But in general, we see levels of well-being rapidly or dramatically increase because there's this, it's like the not-for-profit world creates space. It takes off a lot of the for-profit pressures that we feel right now. And, and many of us might not even be really conscious of how many for-profit pressures guide our lives. For instance, um, the ubiquitous marketing and the, the culture of consumerism are part and parcel of the for-profit system because, like I said before, these for-profit companies have to grow, right? Because they have to, first of all, maximize profit. So that means growing profit every year. So the companies desire to grow. And they also have to compensate for the extraction of the profit from the company. So they have to keep doing more and more every year. So this pressure is... Industries are always seeking to grow. They're trying to create new markets and new needs, basically. We see this whole manufactured needs, quote unquote, through marketing and, and convincing us that we're not good enough and we need to buy more. And so this culture of consumerism is a lot of pressure in the not-for-profit world where all businesses are purpose-driven and don't have that pressure to constantly grow to compensate for extracted value. It takes a lot of that pressure off. So we see a lot more well-being uh, people being able to work less. The market shrinks actually because the not-for-profit world creates the space for us to acknowledge that human needs are complex and that not all of our needs are best met by the market. A lot of our needs are, are better met outside of the market, right? Through personal relationships and, and community connections and having time for ourselves, having connection with nature, being able to relax and play and create rather than the market trying to figure out how to, to meet those needs all the time because these companies have to maximize profit. The not-for-profit world creates space for us to meet our needs better outside of the market. I mean, some of our needs, not all of our needs. And so we see a less work, more free time, stronger communities, more personal connection, and just generally higher levels of well-being. And, and so what if we took all of the dividends that for-profit companies have to distribute to investors and put that back into the operations of companies? We were talking just a few episodes ago with Michael Hudson, who was discussing just the scale of stock buybacks and how there's this huge incentive for companies like IBM or Apple to amass these huge amounts of cash and then prop up their stock valuation by buying back shares and keeping their stock price really high. What if we put all of that money back into the actual operations of companies or you know, into wages? How, how would that change kind of the inequality that we face in the world today? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I sort of forgot to mention that. That's a, that's a key thing of a, the not-for-profit world is that there's going to be a lot more equality than what we have now. Like you said, this extraction mechanism of trying to prop up stock prices and, and deliver high dividends and shareholder value and all of that, it's really inefficient <laughs> for one thing. And another thing is that this accumulation mechanism, the extraction and accumulation that happens naturally, you know, like I said earlier, the goal of for-profit business and the for-profit system is accumulating material wealth and, and money. And it's happened very efficiently. And so we've got enormous inequality in the not-for-profit world has sort of cut off, we call it the wealth extraction siphon, this mechanism by which for-profit companies are privately owned and deliver dividends and profits to these private owners. It, it extracts value from the real economy in a sense, because a lot of these owners, I mean, owners and investors sort of by nature, most of them already have more money than they need. So they're accumulating as any good capitalist would. And if there's a been the creation of an elite economy sort of off on its own and that's where you know they invest in financial assets and yachts and $20,000 handbags and all of that stuff and so the the money is constantly being extracted through the siphon from the real economy to the elite economy and when you cut that siphon off when you stop the siphon as in the not for profit world then wealth circulation just happens naturally through the market through not for profit business so you have a lot more equality a lot less accumulation in just the upper echelons of of the income brackets so and then the stock buybacks by the way i see it as a really uh, it's a move of desperation basically to try to increase the appearance of profit and profit margins when indeed profit margins are falling throughout the system just because it, it, there's not much more growth that can be squeezed out right now yeah yeah so do you see a time where maybe a profit seeking motive was moving business and society in a generative direction like 50 or 60 years ago the for profit model was really what society needed you know, when the for-profit system, I mean, capitalism, basically, you know, capitalism is the for-profit system. It's based on private ownership of businesses and, and the capitalist. So when capitalism started and these for-profit businesses started and, and for the first, you know, few decades or more, it was great because it, it wasn't perfect, <laughs> but it could drive some really great things in terms of innovation. It, it did get investment and allocate resources in ways that were useful for society. But that was in a time before we had the internet, before we had globalization, and in a time when communities held business owners accountable because those business owners were rooted in their communities still. They had to you know, keep their reputation good. They had to, to still be respected by the communities in which they were embedded. And so there was sort of this natural check on for-profit business in terms of it still being embedded in the community. Now that we've got globalization and business owners are sort of, they can be completely anonymous and invisible to us and who can keep them accountable for the, the actions of their companies. So it's become very destructive in an age of globalization. And so let's say in 20 years, something like 
40 or even 50% of all of the businesses in society are not for profit. What would that do to governments and kind of their tax structure? Do you think that governments would resist that kind of structure for business because they aren't getting taxes off of the for profit businesses? Well, there's a couple of things there, but the first is that we probably, most of us think that governments get a lot more tax revenue from for-profit businesses than they actually do. You know, a lot of us are aware of how much tax evasion and tax cuts and subsidies happen yeah. for large for-profit corporations. I mean, I th I've heard that GE didn't pay a dollar in taxes for years, you know. So governments get a lot less tax revenue from for-profit companies. I think it's something like 10% of all tax revenue in the U.S. is from companies, from corporate taxes. So it wouldn't change things so much. Now, one of the things that we're, we're saying, we're arguing with the not-for-profit world is that tax revenue probably would decrease. Still, some not-for-profit businesses might still have to pay taxes because they have less of a social oriented mission or something, or have a for-profit subsidiary like a lot of not-for-profits do now. So they might pay some tax there. But even though tax revenue is dropping, we're saying that the need for tax revenue is also dropping. Because if you have an entire market of not-for-profit businesses that have social missions, then that sort of the market becomes a bit of the safety net. We've relied on the government for years to provide a safety net to balance out corporate greed in a way, to balance out the greed of the market. Well, what if the market actually forms a bit of a safety net itself? So that takes a lot of pressure off of the government to do that. And also in terms of when we go back and think about the, the not-for-profit world and how it does create more well-being and more equality, if you have a population that's a lot healthier in terms of psychological health and physical health, then there's also less pressure on the government to provide things that it provides now. So less tax revenue, but also less pressure. And also we hope to see the government become more entrepreneurial, just like we see traditional nonprofits that were have been dependent on philanthropy and grants and donations are starting to move more into business. We see the same thing happening with governments out of necessity, basically, that they're starting to have to be a little bit more entrepreneurial and business minded as well. So they won't have to be as dependent on tax revenue. So how would you retool business schools or business education to integrate what you've learned as you've put this book together? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Business and economics courses in schools need to have this narrative and this information in, embedded in their courses. But it is quite a big change because it goes quite deep. It goes all the way to the basic assumptions that are, are almost like the laws of economics courses when you taught about the profit motive sort of as a law, you know, we're talking about a switch from the profit motive to the purpose motive. And that entails a, a totally different understanding of human nature, even from just being greedy, self-interested creatures to having a lot more complex human nature that drives a more purpose orientation. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot in terms of retooling. I, I guess you, you start just sort of integrating more of these ideas into the courses and then hopefully the basic assumptions start to change as well. Any other closing comments or thoughts to leave with our listeners about a not-for-profit world? Yeah, closing thoughts. I just, this is a, a paradigm shift. I 
feel like we're really the world is ripe. The the for profit system is failing. The not for profit business is on the rise. So we're really at a a very exciting time in history where we're we're at the end of one economic era and there's fantastic potential to have a more generative not-for-profit economic era now so please look more into not-for-profit business please support local not-for-profit businesses around you and yeah it's something to keep in mind as you're going through life as a consumer a citizen a business leader wherever you are this idea of for-profit versus not-for-profit and the role that it will increasingly play in this century. And that closes out our interview with Jennifer Henson about a not-for-profit world. I think it's really interesting to think about all of the issues that Douglas Rushkoff is bringing up in his new book and that we've been talking about on the show today in the context of creating a not-for-profit business because we here at The Extra Environmentalist, we've been following that model the last few years and it's been going really well. I think we've been able to do a lot of things with our video operations and with our kind of sister show, the Energy Transition Show, that we wouldn't be able to do if we were in a for-profit model because the service that we provide to a lot of people for video just would not fly if we were having to go like a lot of tech companies that Douglas Rushkoff was talking about where we would have to get investors and respond to those investors and so on. And in this way, we can use a kind of innovative investor model of funding it, you know, without having to sell shares in what we do. And that's given us a lot of creative freedom that the startups Rushkoff mentioned don't really have. Yeah, Justin. And I think that a lot of businesses really don't take advantage of this kind of slow, kind of organic growing model that we at the Extra Environmentalist are using. We've really let this business kind of grow itself very organically. And we've had the luxury of doing that by having other kind of jobs in this economy that we are working. You're a student at UBC and I am working for a large university as well. So we've had the opportunity to let this company just develop slowly and organically. A lot of folks put all of their eggs in one basket and jump in with two feet, you know, three feet and their arms and all their legs and everything. They just jump in full, full-fledged into their work and they need investors to help them to get moving. And this is a really interesting way of building business. This is an interesting way of 
taking something that's small and like a great idea and then making it into a massive, massive idea. And something that really kind of struck me was the analogy that you made in the beginning of the Rushkoff interview comparing Snapchat to Deutsche Bank and how they're basically valued at about the same right now, which is incredible to think about to me because, you know, what is Snapchat? It's an app that sends messages that delete themselves after a few seconds. And a Deutsche Bank is like an international corporation. And to have them valued the same really kind of puts into perspective the idea of how these startups, these good ideas, these small good ideas are now being valued and almost being bubbleized. You know, like, I don't know if that's the right word to use here, the made into a bubble, you know, made into these humongous inflated businesses that probably don't have the same kind of real world value as say like a brick and mortar bank or a, a supermarket or something like that. But it's because of the stock market and because of the way our startup economy and the way that we now value companies, this has become normal. It's become normal to blow up a startup into a huge corporation just by saying, hey, well, I think that this vertical market is going to be saturated and we'll be able to pivot into something else. And because of that, we are now exploding these small, small startup companies into these enormous things that probably should not be. Yeah. One of the things that Rushkoff brought up that I hadn't really thought of before is that digital startups are just like anything that investors are flipping because it doesn't matter what the underlying idea is as long as another investor will value it and is willing to bid it up. And it's just like in Vancouver, which has a very hot housing market where I live, and you see condos just constantly being flipped and traded up. And this whole idea of the property ladder is extremely ingrained here. But it's that same mentality that's driving the pseudo innovation of today's tech startups that get all of the attention. And so it shifts the focus away from providing a meaningful service to people and into just creating something that investors will pay a lot of money for. And Twitter is something that's been extremely useful to me over the last 10 years. And I know a lot of people will see just the very surface level use of Twitter and think, man, it's just so silly. But I've connected with a lot of great journalists and thinkers. And that's actually where I first met the host of the Energy Transition Show, Chris Nelder. And we first built a relationship through that, as well as a lot of the people I've worked with on video projects over the years. And it's been so great. And that in itself is wonderful service. But Twitter's never going to make money in the way that investors want it to, and so it's considered a failure. And that's such a, a twisted logic to me because it can provide something that, that's really useful to people and disseminate news and information in a meaningful way and still perform very poorly as a financial investment. And that just shows you how twisted the logic of that whole game really is. Well, the whole system is kind of twisted, Justin, because you have these folks who go to school for programming, like you were talking about in the interview. They go for the, the big paychecks that are going to come at the other side. And they go to school and they spend tens and thousands of dollars getting that education because of the fact on the other side, they're going to be getting these enormous salaries to you know, pay off these debts. And that idea that you need to go to school to get these skills and then join a large corporation to pay off that incredible debt that you've accumulated is really what fuels this whole system into making it unsustainable for folks to actually do the work on projects that is meaningful. If folks came out of school and, and were not burdened by enormous amount of debt piled on by the university system, 
we wouldn't need to have corporations paying them hundreds of thousands of dollars to do the programming work that needs to be done. Instead, maybe they could focus on starting businesses that helped the world, that made meaningful projects that were able to benefit folks that were not large corporations, that focused on local economies, that focused on local currencies, and that incorporated these digital tools into people's lives in a more meaningful way than the way that the corporations right now are are using these tools. Yeah, and I think the skills themselves are extremely valuable. And it's just trying to think of ways that they can be put to a more human context rather than the financialized startup culture that we really focused on with Douglas Rushkoff. And I think some ideas like starting not-for-profit enterprises is is one way of doing that, but it's never going to pay the same way that the kind of tech startup world will if it works out for people. And with being loaded down with debt from education, it makes it a really hard game to uh, commit to doing something different like that. So yeah, it's a tough challenge, but I think that some of the ideas in the interviews today can help people think about how to resolve that. And some folks who have not been overburdened by enormous student debt are these people who have donated their hard-earned dollars to the Extra Environmentalist podcast. And Ben from Colorado, thank you so very much for sending in your hard-earned dollars to support your favorite podcast. And also thanks to Kyle from Colorado for making a donation to the show. And Ben says, your podcast really helps me to understand what I already know is true but haven't been able to articulate. Thanks for the honest look at this overexploited, manipulated world. Looking objectively at the current situation and actually getting somewhere and understanding it actually gives me hope. Thanks for all you do. And thanks, Ben, for all you do been sending in those hard-earned dollars. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. And also thanks to Kyle, who sent in a donation to the show. And Ian from Australia and Down Under, thank you for supporting Extra Environmentalists so very much with your very, very generous gift. We're so grateful to all of our supporters and everyone who marked on their donation their t-shirt size is getting a t-shirt sent out to them, as well as a few stickers. So that's just a little way of saying thanks. I'd also like to make an announcement that I do happen to have four extra large Extra Environmentalist t-shirts from our last batch that have not made it out to any lucky listeners because not really that many people use extra large shirts. So if you are an extra large size person and would like an extra large size Extra Environmentalist t-shirt, please contact us and let us know and we can get those out to you. So we've been mentioning this on a lot of our recent shows, but we're working on this new network website where we'll have shows that we are producing and also partnering with. And those first designs are in. So thanks for everyone for listening to our show over the years and helping to support us to get to this point. And hopefully in the next month or so, we'll be able to launch it. So when we do, we'll make an announcement on the show to send you all over to the new site. And this podcast network is something we've been working towards for a really long time. It's something that's been one of Justin and I's long-term visions and goals is to actually put out a network where we can distribute this kind of content that we do talk about in The Extra Environmentalist through a, a whole range of different kinds of shows. And it's so exciting for both of us to really see this vision coming true, to see it coming to fruition, and to know that it's all because of all of you listeners out there of this show that we're able to make it happen. So once again, thank you so very much for all that you do in making 
extra environmental is what it is today to all your donations to all your emails and your facebook posts and your twitter posts of and sharing these shows with all of your friends and family it's been a wonderful wonderful ride and now we're able to take that next step into expanding into our our network where we're going to be able to deliver these types of shows to a much wider range of audience and to actually make these kind of episodes fundable to make them something that we can focus in and make this part of our lives in a financially reasonable way. So thanks again. Thanks so much from both Justin and I. We both thank everyone out there who's listened to the Extra Environmentalists from the bottom of our hearts. So we'll be back with more great interviews in about a month. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Extra Environmentalist. Stay tuned for more episodes of the show as the winter months start creeping in and we start huddling around the fires, keeping warm. Have a wonderful day. They say the economy is getting better, though. The unemployment rate just hit an eight-year low. People are finally getting back to work in this country, which sounds like a good thing at first, but as far as I can tell, it's just because everyone became an Uber driver. <laughs> like, Obama wants you to think this country is creating jobs, but it's not. This country created one job, which is Uber driver, and then we all signed up for it. <laughs> So now our entire economy is based on the fact that we take turns giving each other a ride to the airport. <laughs> in exchange for the same $30. <laughs> everyone now, no matter what they want to do, their fallback plan is to become an Uber driver. Which is weird, because when I was in philosophy class studying Nietzsche, they taught us that an Uberman was someone who could accomplish anything. But in the real world, it turns out an Uberman is someone who's failed at everything. <laughs> and probably majored in philosophy. Now Uber's getting so popular, it's putting taxi drivers out of business, which makes it the only industry where entitled white hipsters are taking jobs from honest, hardworking, illegal immigrants. <laughs> People don't want to like drive themselves anywhere anymore. They don't even want to walk anymore. Everybody's got those hoverboards. Like when I was little, the movie Back to the Future predicted that we would have hoverboards in 2016, and they were right. But what they didn't predict is that America would get so fat in the meantime that hoverboards can't hover, they just roll. <laughs> and then burst into flames.